0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 150 Dr. Larry Hurtado's Destroyer of the Gods, Part 2. Dr. Larry Hurtado is Emeritus Professor of New Testament Language, Literature, and Theology at the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, the author of many scholarly articles and reviews. His books include Lord Jesus Christ, Devotion to Jesus in Earliest Christianity, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God?, The Earliest Christian Artifacts, Manuscripts and Christian Origins, and God in New Testament Theology. He's perhaps best known for his book, One God, One Lord, Early Christian Devotion and Ancient Jewish Monotheism, the third edition of which came out in 2015. He also shares his thoughts on recent scholarship with the wider public at his blog at larryhurtado.wordpress.com. He's here with us today to talk about his latest book entitled, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctives in the Roman World. Dr. Hurtado, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast thank you for having me. Dr. Hurtado, you describe early Christianity as far more book-focused than most other religious movements. What sorts of evidence do we have for this claim?
0: Well, one thing is uh, we have early Christian texts <laughs> which exhibit their textual uh, interests. By common scholarly judgment, the earliest uh, extant Christian texts that we have are, are the letters of Paul, which take us back to within 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, and perhaps a little closer. These are quite substantial pieces which circulate around and are read and used in churches. And the point is that he not only wrote these letters, but these letters were intended to be read in the church assemblies as part of the church assembly. That's the crucial thing, is that you have both the production and writing of texts, but also the use of these texts as components of corporate worship, Similarly, we know from references from early Christian writings that the writings that Christians came to refer to as the Old Testament, Jewish scriptures, were likewise read characteristically as components of early Christian gathered worship as they had been at the same time in Jewish synagogues. And so, in some sense, the Christian bookishness, the Christian use of books in worship and uh, reading them as scripture was reflective of the the Jewish matrix out of which the the Christian movement came. The Jewish religion was comparatively textually oriented in comparison to pagan religion. You don't really have, you see, in the larger larger Roman world, you don't really have scriptures for, you know, the Athenian gods or the traditional Roman gods or gods like Isis or Mithras or the others. They don't have sacred books or scriptures. Certainly not writings that are read as part of the worship. Uh, and shared amongst the the, the corporate group. In some cases you have special writings that are used by the priests of some of the pagan cults to guide their sacrificial rituals, but they aren't read out as teaching texts, you might say, to shape the corporate identity of the worshippers in the way in which scriptures are read in Jewish synagogue and in early Christian churches. The next thing I point out is not only are do you have the reading of text, regular reading of text, as a constituent kind of corporate identifying exercise, but also the continuing production of new texts, letters of Paul, but also then others subsequently. In a, a fairly recently done introduction or survey of early Christian literature in the first several centuries, by my count we have knowledge of at least 200, 250 books written by Christians in the first, roughly the first 200 years or so. And again, keeping in mind, there's a small movement that, you know, by 100 AD, maybe was what, 10,000 people total. And by 200, maybe a couple of hundred thousand. And they're producing, you know, a couple of hundred books across this period. I, I don't know of any comparison for that. And again, if you throw in the larger Jewish context of the time, I don't think that uh, we have indications of Judaism producing the same number of books in this period. So, for its size, they're uh, punching way above their weight in the production of new texts. Also, we know from early Christian writings descriptions of the efforts that they engaged in in copying and distributing their writings. You have effectively, on a small scale, early Christian publishing Activities, you know, like copying and distribution of texts sent out with deliberation to other other centers. Mm-hmm. Again, this there's, there's a phenomenal amount of activity associated with this. Keeping in mind that there was no postal system, there was no public delivery system for mail or parcels. Anything that was sent by individuals had to be done through making arrangements with a ship's captain or with a merchant, traveling merchant, or someone. In much in the way in which we would do private courier stuff, well, everything had to be done by some kind of private couriering thing. Only you didn't necessarily have dedicated courier firms. You simply paid a fee to traveling merchants. This would be one of the way one of their income streams was to deliver mail to another port for a fee. And so uh, either that, or you had to delegate uh, the book or the letter or whatever to be taken by hand by a member of your church to that other church in another city, which meant that person had to have time to do it. You had to somehow or other provide for their meals, for their transportation, which might take two days, a week, two weeks, whatever, to go to another place. So if you stop and think of the amount of uh, financial and personal resources put into the copying and distribution of texts, that also is phenomenal for the size of the movement. And one of the indications of this is, of course, that uh, as Christianity grows, Christian texts come to form a significantly larger portion of the total extant manuscripts, total extant texts that we have from a period. For example, the Leuven database of the ancient book, which is a, a database that puts together all of the known copies of known texts from antiquity, across several centuries. Uh, If you look at the extant manuscripts from the second century already, we have several copies of early Christian writings, both biblical writings and non-biblical writings, such as Irenaeus' Against Heresies or other texts, Shepherd of Hermas. And as you move into the third century, then as Christianity grows, becomes perhaps uh, 5% of the population, I don't know, 10% by the year 300. Copies of Christian texts come to form a progressively larger portion of the total number of texts that were being made and circulated. So in in every way that we can measure textuality, so to speak, every every way that we have of measuring the significance of books, in early Christianity, it's considerable. And in comparison to the larger religious world, utterly distinctive.
1: So, some religions hardly produce books at all, or, or just don't, and some well, religions true. make unreadably huge libraries full of scriptures. Yeah,
0: that's true. A year or so ago, I, I picked up a very interesting book that focuses on the spread of, uh, caught my eye, because it was on the spread of religious ideas in the Roman world. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this is right up my alley, I want to read this. And it was done by a, a lady who had done it, based on her PhD, done here in Britain And the focus of her study was really the pagan cult of Jupiter Dolecanus. Jupiter, of course, the well-known father figure of the Roman pantheon, but Jupiter Dolecanus was a kind of mixture of Jupiter with a local deity from the area of uh, Doleki, which is in sort of the Syrian-Parthian border, eastern eastern part of the Roman Empire. She does a study of the growth and uh, geographical spread and distribution of this cult Across two or three centuries, across the first two or three centuries, about the same period as the growth of early Christianity. Her data for this is really quite good, and she's able to show exactly where this cult went and even show the kind of people who were its devotees. And the basic conclusions are that this was a cult that was that basically spread where the Roman army went, mm-hmm. and its devotees, she shows, appear to be dominantly men in the Roman officer corps of the Roman army. The data for this is entirely the uh, shrines that were built to Jupiter Dolicanus, altars that were set up and inscribed and inscriptions that were put on them which name the devotees or the people who paid for the altar to be built or who paid for the shrine to be built. That is its physical artifacts of shrines, images, altars, and inscriptions, okay? Yeah. Not a single text whatsoever, mm-hmm. but an abundant amount of what archaeologists would more typically think of as artifactual evidence. In the case of early Christianity, we don't have an identifiable church structure extant earlier than the well-known one at Dura Europus in modern-day Syria, which dates from sometime in the middle of the 3rd century. Mm-hmm. Roughly 250 or so. Mm-hmm. That's the first or the earliest extant church structure by by common consent that we know of. There may have been earlier ones, but we don't have any. Instead, by 250, by the date of that church, as they say, we have in excess of 200 writings produced by Christians, many of which survive in part or in whole that we're able to look at. So when we talk about early Christianity, you are forced to depend almost entirely. On texts written by Christians or written about Christians by outsiders. And we have virtually no physical artifacts other than our copies of texts, the manuscripts that, that are artifacts, but they're, they're copies of texts from this period. In the case of something like Jupiter Dolcanus or the Mithras cult, or the ISIS cult, or the other sort of voluntaristic religions of the day, voluntaristic cults of the day, that in some sense in the past have been thought of as competitors for Christianity. I think that's an exaggeration, but in some sense at least they are like early Christianity in that they are voluntaristic religion that you join as an individual. Mm-hmm. But in the case of all of these other cults, our database, our knowledge of them, isn't is dependent almost entirely. On physical objects. We have virtually no text at all. That's why, for example, some of them are sometimes referred to as mystery cults or secret cults. They're (laughs) they're secret to us because we don't have bloody much information to say much about them. Mm. Uh, But in the case of early Christianity, we have this um, efflorescence of texts in which they invested their efforts, not altars and images and shrines, but the production of texts.
1: And wasn't the use of the text very distinctive? I mean, in many religions, they, they'll have text, but it might be a book of magic spells that only a specialist could use, or they might just literally idolize the book. But these were read out loud regularly and meant to be understood by all listening?
0: Yes, as I say, they're, they're, they were read from our earliest indications, the, uh, the scripture writings such as the Old Testament writings, and also then the emergent writings of early Christianity, the letters of Paul and other the gospels are read as a, as a regular feature of Christian worship. Famously, of course, Justin Martyr, writing in the middle of the second century, refers to what goes on in his, uh, in his first apology, refers to what goes on in early Christian circles, and, he's, and he talks of the reading of what he calls the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets, probably referring respectively to the gospels and letters of Paul on the one hand and Old Testament writings on the other that are read and he says, and, and these are read for as long as the reader is able.
1: <laughs> so you,
0: <laughs> you get an idea that it isn't just a little snippet, a little text used for a sermon, but the reading of the text, the full-out reading of a text was the exercise. <laughs> you know, in, in a lot of modern Protestant circles, for example, you know, you have a little snippet of a text that's read and then a 40-minute sermon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> in Justin's day, the impression you get is that you had a 40-minute reading of text and maybe a short Comment or homily or something. It was the reading of text itself that was much, uh, you know, a a constituent feature. And um, for teaching purposes, for the. and, And these texts were read out so that people from the reading of the text, from the sharing of the text, obtained a sense of who they were. The texts were formative for the whole ethos of early Christianity.
1: Now, in some religions, the original form of a sacred text is sacrosanct, and so you can't even translate it. Do we have evidence that Christians always translated their scriptures when they needed to? Because that would be evidence that they actually meant to convey the information.
0: In the first um, two centuries, certainly, the Christians seemed to have worked, as far as we can tell from the extant material, seemed to have worked almost entirely in Greek. But of course, Greek at the time was the universal language, the, the transnational language that people used for communication purposes. So even, certainly, uh, the majority of Greek speakers in the Roman world were not Greeks, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the same way that probably the majority of English speakers in the world today are not from Britain. Or sure. or Greek had become an equivalent, even more so, kind of, you know, imperial language, certainly in the eastern part of the empire. So the choice to write in Greek was reflective, actually, something uh, reflective of the trans-ethnic, translocal nature of early Christianity and the desire to communicate with other believers in other cities as well. There's the assumption often, and it may be right, that Judean Christians uh, living in Judea, and Roman Judea, may have uh, communicated with one another in Aramaic, orally, and perhaps in writing. That may well be the case. We don't know that, but it may well been, have been the case. But if so, it would have been done simply for local, you know, communication. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to communicate even with other Jews in other cities, you had to do so in Greek, because most Jews of the time did not use Hebrew or Aramaic as their primary language, but used Greek.
1: Don't we have fairly early translations in uh, Coptic, Syriac, Latin? Yes.
0: But by, the, by the third century, you begin to have the use of both Latin and Coptic, certainly probably a bit earlier maybe Latin by by around 200 or thereafter with Tertullian in, and writers in North Africa as well as in Italy. You have the emergence of Latin writings and probably early translations of some of the New Testament writings into Latin. And then some point in the third century, maybe middle to late third century, I think, People believe now that probably the earliest efforts to begin translating some of the writings into Coptic emerged. It's interesting, Coptic, what we call Coptic, was the indigenous language of Egypt, sort of the demotic uh, native language of Egypt, which um, until this point was not a written language. Hmm. It was an oral language. So the emergence of Coptic as a written language is due to Christianity the desire to translate writings into the native language of Egypt, for example, Coptic. They borrow the Greek alphabet, adapt it, and create a written language. Hmm. The to what, of course, Cyril did in coming up with the Cyrillic alphabet and giving the Slavic languages a written form. So early Christianity, even in that early period, was not only given to reading composing, copying, and circulating of books, but also, as you point out, the translation of uh, writings and the cultivation of indigenous and native languages such as Coptic, the cultivation of them and bringing of them from simply kind of, you know, informal oral usage, making them the language of literature.
1: And it still happens. I once personally met a man and his wife who had been evangelical missionaries in the jungle in South America somewhere. And they had taken this language that had no written form, that probably just had a couple of thousand speakers, and invented the written language, letters and everything. And I held in my hand the New Testament. They had translated the whole New Testament into this. And I mean, it took them more than a decade, but it's, it's kind of astounding if you think about it. This is not an unusual thing. This has happened hundreds of times.
0: Yes, of course. The initial great scripture translation project was the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, Mm -hmm. which began, we think, perhaps in the third century BC or so, uh, with the translation of the the Torah, the five books of Moses, and then a progressive translation of other writings that continued on. So that by the time of the first Christians, by the time of, say, the first century AD, pretty much the whole, it appears, of the Old Testament had been translated into Greek. And most people, most Jews, who read their scriptural writings? Read them in Greek at that point mm-hmm. in the diaspora, various diaspora locations outside of uh, outside of the land of Israel. And indeed, the the, the translation of the, the Greek Old Testament, commonly called the Septuagint, um, has been described by Martin Hengel as perhaps the greatest translation project in the ancient world, both in size and in impact. It's probably so. And so the early Christian then continuation of that translation of scripture into reception languages, into Latin, into Coptic, and then subsequently into other languages in the early centuries, that uh, in some sense is a continuation of the readiness of Judaism before that to render her sacred text, her sacred Hebrew text into into Greek. And it's also, of course, the the much more aggressive effort of, of early Christianity to do that with many more languages is also, of course, indicative of its very aggressive evangelistic character, its desire to communicate its message across into various peoples and to, um, in some sense, to indigenize Christianity, to situate it and and enable it to kind of take up residence, so to speak, in the various cultures to which it was uh, communicated.
1: Dr. Hurtado, when we read the New Testament, we see a constant drumbeat of exhortations to everyday behavior which is worthy of followers of Jesus. How does early Christian moral teaching differ from the moral instruction given by their pagan contemporaries?
0: There are differences and similarities. And one of some of these I I cite in the book, I mean, at the level of popular behavior, you might say, sort of the behavior of the masses, one can often see a great deal of difference. Not only do we have, uh, you know, I I mentioned, for example, gladiatorial sports, sort of blood sports of the time in which uh, humans uh, engaged in sometimes a mortal combat with each other as public entertainment. So you not only have those kinds of things where Christians were, you know, insisted that they were to abstain from even attending such things, let alone participating in them. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the level of private behavior, personal behavior, one of the crucial areas is in sexual behavior. At the popular level, at the general level, probably most people of the time probably wanted their wives, for example, most men of the time probably wanted their wives to be chaste Mm -hmm. and faithful and not sleep around with other men. Right. And most women probably, you know, internalized those kinds of behaviors, thinking, yeah, as a good wife, I should be true and faithful and loyal and exclusive to my husband. Nothing unusual there. So when early Christians say wives should love their husbands and should, uh, or should be true to their husbands and should, uh, you know, not commit adultery and so on. There'll be nothing unusual there. Everybody would said, yeah, yeah, we believe that. But the general view of the time was that a different set of rules applied to men. Uh, women, married women in particular, were expected to be faithful and true and chaste, but married men were free to behave as they wished sexually. So a married man, a respectable married man, not a rascal, but a fully respectable married man, would, if he were traveling to another city or whatever, well, you know, if you found some prostitute who was available and attractive to him, might well have sex with a prostitute and think nothing of it. Or even in his own hometown, if he was invited out to dinner with a group of his male drinking mates, they might have a drinking session, a symposium, as it was called, and have a dinner. And the host might well arrange to have um, slave girls and slave boys brought in to this male-only drinking party. And you could sort of... Choose your flavor, whatever you wanted. You could have sex with a slave girl or sex with a slave boy as part of the part of the menu, so to speak, part of the entertainment. And you wouldn't think twice of that. Not only that, but if you had slaves in your household, you might well have sex with your slave, your own slave. After all, she is your slave. She's, she has no rights of her own. Mm-hmm. And you're her master, so you have a right to have sex with her. And you would not think in any way that this is something you needed to keep secret from other people or you would not feel ashamed of it. You would certainly not even keep it secret from your wife. And your wife would simply accept it. Early Christianity comes along and says to these converted pagans, not only must your wives be chaste and faithful and exclusive, but men have to live by the same rule. Married married men have to live by the same rule. Effectively, one of the really revolutionary things that early Christianity broadcasts is this erasure of the double standard. What is good for the goose, so to speak, is good for the gander uh, when it comes to sexual behavior. Now you can find parallels for this, parallel sentiments in some of the philosophical teachers of the day. I mention in the book figures such as Musonius Rufus or Epictetus, uh, Stoic influenced philosophers, both of whom project ideas on sexual behavior and in other matters that are very similar to some of the teachings of early Christianity. They also thought that men should really behave responsibly and live as chaste as as their wives. The crucial difference is this. At the level of ideas, there's a certain level of similarity between early Christianity and some features of some of the philosophical traditions. But these philosophers never made really any effort to go out and sort of broadcast their ideas to shape public behavior at large. They taught their ideas to small circles of dedicated students who would devote themselves to a year, two years or so of um, dedicated life with their, their master and learning from him how to reshape their thinking, to absorb the mind of a philosopher because it was thought that a great deal of effort, a great deal of mental training and so on was necessary in order to reshape your mentality to live this way. It was very difficult You were swimming against the tide. By contrast, early Christianity takes these ideas of sexual uh, exclusivity and faithfulness and enforces them upon all of its converts from the point of baptism onward. Male, female, young, old, poor, high status, low status. You were expected, if you were a Christian convert, to begin exhibiting these behaviors from the get-go. And so if we look not so much at the ideas, but if we look at the social impact or the social project involved, Stoic philosophers are little tight circles of, you know, who influence and shape the behavior, maybe, of little small circles of dedicated followers. Early Christianity is much more of an aggressive social project, seeking to shape the behavior of all of its adherents, and as it grows progressively, that impact becomes progressive as well. Galen, the um, philosopher, famous philosopher and physician of the second century, comments on Christians, and it's interesting. His comments are that, um, gee, he says, you know, I to paraphrase him, gee, these Christians uh, exhibit the virtues that we associate with philosophy, and yet they've never studied philosophy. He's quite impressed, in some sense, that they exhibit the behavioral standards that you would expect of philosophers, because in his mind, the only way you could attain to these behavioral standards is by giving yourself to a rigorous program of prolonged study and practice and effort. Because it was seemed so bloody difficult to live that way in his mind, but the early Christians lived by these standards and project them collectively through their their whole constituency.
1: It seems to me there's a deep level of different thinking about sexual ethics as well. I mean, having read some Stoics and Platonists, their beef with sexual activity and sexual desire is that it tends to override reason. <laughs> and, yes, and, you're
0: uh, you're out of control. You yeah, uh, self control is the key virtue there. Yeah. And they're well aware that eros and the power of uh, sexual attraction and so on can be, um, you know, uh, disturbs your equanimity and disturbs your self-control. And so it's it's unworthy of you to be given to these things, yes.
1: Right. It keeps you from being a man of reason, you know, in the full sense. You see this coming in really obviously to be a Christian concern, especially in the time of Augustine, for instance. But I don't see this kind of idea at all in the New Testament. I mean, wasn't there a different basis, a kind of a humanistic concern that was the justification for the strictness?
0: In matters of, say, sexual behavior, you have this matter, this sort of matter being addressed already from from the letters of Paul, and just to go to the earliest, by wide consent, probably the earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians, already there you have Paul giving instructions about sexual behavior, mainly notice directed to men. Mm-hmm. Because women weren't the problem in that time, women knew how they were to behave. It was men who had to be taught how to behave, and so he's directing his um, his appeal to to male Christians to live. Uh, and and there it's interesting. He uses language of um, sanctification, of holiness. God has called, he says, God has called you to holiness, to sanctification, to purity, not to the kind of unholiness and impurity that he identifies as part of of the pagan ethos. And uh, says, you know, God has given you his Holy Spirit, so how can you take the vessel in which God has put his spirit and use it for corrupting evil purposes? You should live corresponding to this divine spirit gift that has been given you. In effect, it's asking you to respond to the gift that God has given, in Paul's case. God has given his spirit, given redemption freely, and so in response, you you owe this back. Or, in his language in, in 1 Corinthians, he will say there, you know, Christ suffered and died for, to redeem you and to redeem your body, not just your soul, and therefore, you owe him everything in return. You should give your body back to, to Christ as, um, reflecting in your behavior, the answering love that answers to his redemptive sacrifice on your behalf. So yeah, there's a, there's a powerful, I would say, kind of relational dynamic that's at work in the early exhortation about not just sexual behavior, but, but general ethical behavior, a very powerful relational dynamic. You know, you're told God has done this, God loves, God has created you, God has redeemed you. God has given these gifts. And so your behavior is presented as a kind of um, reciprocal action, a kind of answering action that uh, responds to God's initiative.
1: One thing that struck me, Dr. Hurtado, about your discussion of all of this is that in the New Testament, it seems that exhortations to all the different groups, husbands, wives, children, slaves, they were just given right there in front of everybody publicly. Yes. And I would think this is not the normal human way. (laughs) They did say different things, have different emphases with regard to the different groups, but to sort of make them all equally accountable is really, I think, unusual. If, If there's a real privileged class, you'd exhort them in private.
0: Yes, the comparison that's often made is between some of the exhortations to different groups, you know, slaves, free, husbands, wives, children, parents, and so on. Uh, which uh, New Testament scholars often refer to as the sort of so-called household codes Mm -hmm. that you find in, say, 1 Peter and in the pastoral letters and in Ephesians. And these uh, household codes are so-called because they seem to be uh, exhortations directed to various parties of the household, you know, parents, child, husband, wives, slaves, free, as to how they should order their lives in relationship to one another. And they're very similar to the teachings that we sometimes see in Greek philosophical circles that likewise are intended to order the behavior of husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and free. So people say oh, those are very similar. This New Testament is simply reflecting Christian versions of household teachings such as we have in other circles as well. That's both true but also not the entire truth. The pagan examples, the philosophical and pagan examples of household codes are teachings that were formulated for the benefit of the head of the household, the male head of the household. So you have texts that say to the male head of the household, here's how you should order your household. You should teach your wife to behave this way. You should teach your children to behave this way. You should see to it that your slaves behave this way. It's a, a communication address to the head of the household how to order his household. In the case of the New Testament writings, these so-called household codes are addressed directly to the different members of the household. That is, it doesn't go through the head of the household. Each of them is in turn addressed. You slaves do this, you wives do this, you husbands do this, you slave owners do this. So they're each addressed in a second person direct address rather than, you know, saying, here's how you should tell your slaves to behave. They're addressed directly. One of the things that, that that does, of course, it treats all of these different parties, those who are in a more subservient position or those who are in a more dominating position, it treats all of them effectively, irrespective of their position, as responsible moral agents. It at least gives them the dignity of treating them as if they are that, as if they have some moral agency. The other thing to note, of course, is the social situation in which this teaching was given. Again, philosophical teaching is given in a setting where you have a group of male-only disciples who are being taught how to order their household or taught how to live. The Christian teaching in question in these household codes is being conveyed in letters that are read out to gatherings of Christians and these gatherings of Christians, we know, were comprised of free slave husbands, wives, parents, Children, household-based groups in which all members of the household were gathered together to form the Christian ecclesia. So as you say, when the slave owner is told, treat your slaves fairly, do not, you know, or treat your children fairly, do not abuse them, the children sitting in that same group would have heard their parents being told to treat them kindly and fairly. Mm-hmm. And the slave would have known that the slave owner, the Christian slave owner at least, is being told to treat your slaves with due consideration and so on. The wife sitting there is being exhorted, you know, submit to your husband, be true to him, be a good wife and so on. But she also listens as her husband is told to love her as Christ loved the church, to be considerate of her as a fellow member of the body of Christ and so on. So it's, it's a very different social dynamic, you know. If you are told privately, here, Dale, here is how you ought to have your teacher wife to behave this way, teach your children to behave this way, that's one kind of communication. Mm-hmm. It's very different if you're brought into a setting where you, your wife, your kids, and everybody are seated down, and each of you in turn hears the other one being told how to behave. That's a very different social dynamic at work. That also is a distinctive feature of early Christian ethical discourse.
1: Yeah, the first way lets me keep my dignity fully intact and remain aloof from <laughs> responsibility to some extent. But <laughs> The second way sort of calls me out publicly. I also notice that I mean, the thing that bothers a lot of modern readers about these codes is that they see that there is a social hierarchy there. Yeah. I've also noticed that in a couple of them, it seems to pointedly call out the person at the top – so you know the slave owner well you're somebody's slave too is the idea yes. somewhere and the husband well yeah but you have to sacrifice for her like christ sacrificed for the church there seems to be a sting there directed at the top of the hierarchy
0: in the um, in the pagan versions of the household code the head of the household is the male head of the household his position is not challenged by anything higher than him hmm. in the christian household codes as you say the discourse treats the male husband, or male head of household, or the owner of slaves, as simply one of several different groups of people. Now obviously, he's not a slave, he's a slaveholder, or he's not a wife, he's a husband. There there are differentiations. There is a certain kind of household um, hierarchy reflected in these writings. But each of the members of the household, including the male husband, or head of household, is treated as under another. He is not the curios. There is a curios to whom all are accountable, including the male head of household. So, that, yes, it's, it's a different kind of dynamic and a different kind of discourse that's at work.
1: Hurtado, as I thought about the distinctives of early Christianity in the first couple hundred years that you discuss in Destroyer of the Gods, it struck me that some of them seem to have been minimized or partly lost through the long course of the Middle Ages. So I think about the worship of images or thinking about Christianity as just an ethnic identity that you're born into, or even a focus more on ceremony than on holy behavior. Do you think that that's so?
0: Yes, I think that um, the, at the risk of being simplistic, my book focuses on the period before Constantine quite deliberately, mm-hmm. because I think that after Constantine first legitimates Christianity and then later in the fourth century makes it the, you know, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire by the late fourth century. At that point, what happens is that Christianity becomes wedded to the state, it begins to see its fate as Directly linked with the fate of the Roman state, right? And uh, I think that this is unfortunate. For uh, uh, to put again, put it a bit simplistically, my view is that Christianity was probably good for the empire, but I'm not too sure that the empire was good for Christianity. Christianity was able to help civilize the empire, help uh, bring levels of civilization, and so on, and and cultural in, in somewhat somewhat enhanced ethical behavioral values, broadly speaking, into the Roman Empire, and subsequently, and has shaped uh, you know, European civilization and those civilizations influenced by Europe. Tremendous um, moral capital has been given to those cultures as a result of, of Christianity's influence. But at the same time, Christianity then became heavily influenced by the state and became heavily influenced, I think, by the pagan world as well, so it's interesting. A number of the things that we previously associate with pagan festivals, such as you know the, uh, I remember being in in Malta, on a, one occasion on holiday, or in places in Italy or Spain on holiday, where you know you would have the local city saint, pretty much looks like the local sort of patron deity of the city, mm-hmm. pagan deity of the city, similar kind of role. Yeah. So you have a local saint, who is hauled out on the annual Saint Day paraded through the city with festivities and so on and so on. And uh, when you read Apuleius' golden ass, where the festival devoted to Isis is described, it's almost a dead ringer Hmm. or the same thing. And, of course, Christianity, you know, invests heavily in the building of um, temples, a.k.a. church buildings, basilicas, Mm -hmm. and begins to take pride in the color and glory of its church structures and so on. So in in a number of ways, Christianity, when given the opportunity, takes on, admittedly, a a lot of the trappings of the pagan world that it had in an earlier period um, absented itself from. In the period of Christendom, when European, uh, you know, to be a European was effectively to be a Christian, nominally. You know, Kierkegaard's famous statement, I am a Dane living in Denmark where everyone is a Christian and I have yet to meet one, he said. (laughs) you know, if you were Danish, you were Christian in some sense, notional sense of the word, not necessarily in any meaningful sense of the word. That kind of attenuated sense of Christianity as given with your birth certificate, yes, became part of European society. Although one of the points I make is that even then, it wasn't exclusively tied with one nationality. You know, if you were Danish, you were Christian. If you were German, you were Christian. If you were Italian, you were Christian. If you were Spanish, you were Christian. So it was still transnational and transcultural in some sense. But yes, at the level of the individual nation groups, they, you know, Italians would have thought, well, every Italian is a Christian or every Frenchman is a Christian in some sense, until the revolution at least. Every Dane is a Christian in some sense of the word. So that, that kind of uh, a relinkage of religion and ethnicity did become a feature of Christendom, for sure. We're moving back into a setting now in the modern world, of course, with the death of Christendom, Even in Europe, where you had established churches, Christendom is well dead and buried. In recent censuses, for example, here in the UK, the majority of people declare themselves as having no religious affiliation whatsoever. Right. And so we're moving back into a period in which religion, Christianity in particular, let's say in European societies, is no longer part of the establishment. As I've said to people in many you know, smart dinner party settings today in Britain and elsewhere, probably, the one awkward thing you can do that will halt all conversation is to declare, by the way, I'm a sincere practicing Christian. Yeah. You know, that will probably freeze the whole conversation. You can say almost anything else about yourself, you know. Uh, yeah, talk about and, your uh, sexual and, and, and activities people, or something. they <laughs> will sort of smile and say, oh, well, good for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the one thing you can do that will kind of, freeze the conversation probably in a great many smart sets is to say, I'm a believing Christian or I'm a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. Bingo! My guess is uh, the room will suddenly fall silent. And my feeling is, well, that's probably good. You know, I think we're probably in a better situation. That's a better situation than the situation of Christendom. Because in that early period in which Christians had to live by their wits, and expressed their faith and identified themselves as Christians only because they thought it worth the cost of doing so, it probably self-selected <laughs> more for an authentic and vibrant and uh, genuine Christianity that made a difference in people's lives. It was probably far less of what Rodney Stark has called freeloaders, hmm. people who simply go along without much investment in the cause. For what it's worth, I guess I would say I don't think that Christians should wring their hands all that much. I mean, I know that often church officials (laughs) wring their hands a lot that, you know, the official status or the quasi-official status of Christianity in Britain or in other places is no longer the same. They don't get invited to the mayor's party anymore or whatever, you know. They don't get treated as part of the establishment anymore. My feeling is "Eh, that's probably all to the good, actually. Personally, I think that religions should be forced to live or die solely by their ability to commend themselves to the consciences of people. And if religions can't do that successfully, they probably deserve to die.
1: Religions are like biological species. There are far more that are extinct than are now going.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Dr. Hurtado, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Again, the book is called Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. This week's thinking music has been Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw. As always, at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, there's a link where you can hear or download this entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode, or join our very active Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back.
0: Thanks for listening.